0: creative journey it's easy to get lost but don't worry you'll lift off
1: sometimes you just need
0: a creative pep talk
1: hey you're listening to the creative pep talk podcast i'm your host andy j pizza The world is moving at a completely inhumane pace. Uh, We talked about that in the last episode. What hope do we have as creators, let alone as humans, of staying relevant in a time like this? They say that in order to master a new skill, it takes 10,000 hours of practice. And I don't know about you, but that's pretty demoralizing when in a tenth of that time most of those skills become obsolete like should i learn 3D should i learn this new software like oh sorry by the time you've mastered a tenth of it it's gone and irrelevant and it can feel pretty hopeless when that is the case but i actually think that there is some hope why because there are skills that you can master that will never become obsolete and they're evergreen and they actually make you better and more efficient at learning uh, up and picking up new skills in real time now I know what you're thinking you're thinking I bet those skills are very painful to learn no that's the best part they are the easiest and most fun skills to attain, in my opinion, and in this episode, with this fun and uh, exciting conversation I had with podcaster and journalist Guy Raz, you probably know him from the TED Radio Hour and How I Built This and Now the Great Creators, you're going to learn the first of these kind of super skills that will be the foundation of Learning the rest of them, and all you have to do is listen to a story, uh, and it's a fun story. It's an exciting story. Um, Guy Guy is a great storyteller, and um, I had a blast interviewing him. After the chat, I'm going to be back to highlight the lesson and an easy prompt to use what you've learned from this episode, and use it immediately after you have listened to the show. And don't worry, the homework is also fun. All right. Let's get into it. Quick little shout out to our print partner uh, and print sponsor of our 2023 calendar. Now, bad news is I think that we are sold out of our 2023 calendars but the good news is that uh, we have some new posters that are episode our favorites um, from listeners and they are all printed by Jack Prince and I, I love Jack Prince's work. They, they're here in Ohio um, and they make beautiful things. I've had a lot of comments about the new uncoated stock that the new calendar is on that um, it, it smells great. It tastes delicious. Don't eat it. There might be a chemical, poisonous kind of thing there. Don't do that. But seriously, it does smell good. And it feels fantastic. It's my dream stock. Um, But uh, that's just what Jack Prints are capable of. And I wanted to give them a quick shout out because they do great work and we love working with them. So if you have print needs, Go we'll get some of that delicious uncoated stock uh, for your own creative practice and, and brand collateral, if you will. It's j a k p r i n t s dot com. Um, we love them. Thanks, Jack Prince. All right. Chapter one, the essential creative lesson that Guy Raz built his creative career on. OK, I'm going to share a dream conversation I had with podcasting legend Guy Raz, host of the TED Radio Hour, How I Built This, and now the Great Creators, which is a new show where he interviews great creators. And yes, these are very great creators. The li- the guest list is ridiculously inspiring. And in the research of getting ready for this chat, I found something that just made me so excited to talk shop with Guy because we're both, as interviewers and podcasters and, and storytellers, Deeply inspired by and guided by the hero's journey. You've probably, if you've listened to this show very long, you've probably heard me talk about the hero's journey a billion times. Well, I was pumped to talk to somebody that is as influenced by the hero's journey as I am. And I really leaned into the hero's journey in my prep of the questions for this episode. Now, there are a ton of lessons and tidbits that you could pull from Guy's creative hero's journey, but at the end, i'm gonna be back i'm gonna come back with what i took as the biggest takeaway from this story and also give you a way to put it to action immediately after this episode but before we get to that here is guys personal creative heroes journey and uh, i had a lot of fun with it and i think that you will as well been doing storytelling and podcasting for quite some time you're also an entrepreneur now and i know that your parents did their own thing but it's kind of my understanding that at least initially you thought that that gene skipped a generation uh is that right what can you tell me a little bit about that about your parents entrepreneurial spark
0: yeah i I grew up my parents were immigrants and um they and so as a result of that me and my sisters uh, and then eventually my, my younger brother we really, um, and this is very common in immigrant households, we, we did everything we could to be American, you know, in, in like inverted quotes, um, you know, going to the school dances and proms and playing the s- sports and, and trying to be everything that, that we could to assimilate and, and be quote unquote normal. And my parents really, I think, like many immigrants, saw all kinds of opportunities in the United States and eventually they they decided to start a jewelry business to start a little shop that would sell pearls and i was maybe 7 years old when they decided to embark on this on this journey my dad was 41 at the time so he wasn't you know a, a young startup entrepreneur i mean eating ramen he was he already had 3 children he had been an engineer by training and worked for different companies you know middle management. But he, he decided he really wanted to do something on his own. And I remember as, as a kid, my mom and dad, you know, just sitting with reams of like, those dot matrix printouts, you know, of leads, and just cold calling people. And, you know, cold calling all day to just get leads to see if they could meet with people to sell their pearls that they started to import from Japan. Early on, they had to work so hard to make that business Get off the ground, and you know I remember they would drive to downtown L.A., be there all day. They'd come home late at night. Um, my sis- oldest sister would c- just kind of take care of me and my other sister. We were little. We would walk home from school, and over the years, it was a real struggle. You know, there were some years where the business did did pretty good and pretty well, and and some years where it really struggled. And you know, look, ultimately it was a triumph. My father, who's now eighty. One and retired was able to raise four children on this business. He, it never made him rich, but it it provided a living. But what I saw growing up was a lot of stress, a lot of uncertainty, um, and so much, um, you know, just uh, uncertainty's right word. So just so much unpredictability about about what would happen year to year. Some some Christmas seasons were terrible. Some were better. Some. Years, nobody was buying pearls. Um, They would go out of fashion, they'd go out of style. And so for me, as I grew up, I, and I think my parents also kind of pushed this, I was looking for certainty, which I think is also common in this sort of first generation or the second generation, right? That is in the US, that you sort of look for something that um, is stable, like being a lawyer or a doctor. Or, or working for a big company, and so that was my pursuit i i all I was always interested in journalism, even from a young age. when I was in eighth grade, I was the student editor of the paper. When I was in high school, I was my high school editor of my high school paper. And so when I got to college, um that's really what i I already knew I wanted to pursue that i was I was on the college paper and I became a reporter, and that was really what i thought i would do with my life i would get a job as a reporter i would travel the world i would work for a, a big newspaper and uh and then you know retire and 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 look back on this interesting career that of course didn't quite pan out in in exactly that way
1: from the outside i feel like it's kind of interesting that you went into journalism it feels almost like Uh, You thought telling other people's story would be a little safer than trying to live your own story, trying to chart your own path kind of thing. But when you got into journalism, you kind of instantly hit some big struggles, right?
0: Well, I did. I mean, look, when I started in – this is in the late 90s. um, It was still – to get a job at, at a major newspaper was so hard. You know, the, the, you, if you were an ambitious young reporter, you wanted to work for the Boston Globe or the Baltimore Sun or the Dallas Morning News or the Seattle Post Intelligence or the San Francisco Chronicle, which was our, you know, of course, they were massively important and powerful regional papers. Forget about the L.A. Times, or the New York Times or the Washington Post. Those were virtually impossible. I couldn't even get my foot in the door at any of those places when I finished college. And... In fact, I couldn't even get my foot in the door at NPR. What had happened was after three tries, three attempts at applying to NPR and three rejections, I just moved to Washington, D.C. after college. Um, I had some friends there and I thought, you know, maybe I'll I'll get into politics or something like that. I got there and the first week I got there, I got a job temping. You, you might remember that in the 1990s, there was a job that doesn't exist anymore called data entry. And you... Uh, were hired by a company to enter text into a large computer database because they were shifting from paper to digital <laughs> models. Now, of course, you just feed it into an AI or whatever if you had to, but humans were the AI, right? And a week into that job, uh, my dad got a, a call on his answering machine, in a message on his answering machine in Los Angeles, and it was somebody from NPR. And he didn't know what it was, and he said, hey, I got a message from someone at NPR. And I was like, wow. So I called. And what had happened was their intern that they had selected for all things considered, um, bailed out in the last minute. And it was the it was the fall of nineteen ninety-seven. And so the 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 head of the show asked for a stack of resumes, and mine happened to be, you know, the third or the fourth one down, and she was just dialing for dollars. You know, she was just dialing and 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 leaving messages. And I and I was the first one that called her back and she said, Well, can you can you do a phone interview, and I said, "Well, I'm in. I'm in Washington, D.C. So I came in the next day, and um, and I never, I never, never left. I mean, I never, I never went back to my job. I mean, talk about luck, you know. Talk about a, a lucky break. And so, I got there in the fall of '97 as an intern on All Things Considered, and that really, you know, began a career in in audio and in broadcasting, and and a career that, um, you know, really was unlikely but i loved it so much i loved being in that environment and and it's like you meet people who talk about the first time they drank a glass of wine and then decided to become a sommelier or somebody who for the you know the, the first time in their life they snowboarded and they decided to devote their life to it like it was literally that for me i didn't know anything about audio but being in that environment was so powerful to me and there was something about the creative energy that I saw all around me, the, the the people taking reels of tape and shifting it left and right and left and right and slight, slight left, slight right, and then cutting it with a razor blade at the right moment and, and watching that and learning that and sitting there learning how to make the things that I was hearing on the radio was this – incredibly powerful and infectious experience because all of a sudden that's all I wanted to do. All I wanted to do was make beautiful audio stories and I couldn't not do it. I I couldn't work nine to five and then go home and eat dinner and do other things. Like I, I kind of became single-minded, you know, I became this kind of single-minded person, focusing on this thing, and that that began really a period of of about three years of relentlessly pursuing making it the profession of journalism. Um, I, I had a hard time at NPR initially. Um, at the time. It was very very difficult to break break in on the radio you know there there were gatekeepers there still are but npr was um on the up and up at the time and eventually became a much bigger organization even bigger than it is today and much more important and influential but to get on the radio was very hard i was very good as a producer and and occasionally you know I would get a voiceover which I lived for. I would get to do a voiceover or i would I would get a quick tape and copy you know where I could write a quick thing and and track something that was two minutes long if there was a hole in a show but but generally, it was almost impossible for me to convince an editor to let me pitch a story and so what I ended up doing was basically scamming my way into journalism, which is how oftentimes a lot of us start our careers. And and the way I did that was I realized early on that I had an NPR email address, which was a huge advantage. And with that email address, I could then email other people and say, hello, I work at NPR. They didn't have to know I was an intern or a very lowly producer. All they knew is that I I worked there. And I'm and I would and so I started to email anybody, I, any email address I could find, which at the time was not hard to find email addresses. And I started emailing the Washington City paper at the time. Um, and eventually, um, I, you know, I, I would write, hey, I'm writing a story about whatever it was, I would just think of something. And eventually, um, somebody there took the bait. And I, be, I got an assignment to write an article for the Washington City paper on spec. It was with I really wanted to be a news reporter, but the arts editor needed help. He really needed good writers, and so I, he had asked me for my clips, and I only had college clips, but he wanted professional clips. And I said, "Oh, they're in storage. I'll get them to you." But in the meantime, can I write? Start writing on this. Work on the story, and he said, "Great. Go go." He said, um, "He said, do you are you a fan of Shakespeare?" And I said, "Absolutely. I, I mean, really. I mean." I, I I I I'd seen Richard III, you know. I've seen The Taming of the Shrew, but no. He said, "Well, there's a there's a there's an actress, a local actress, is in Washington DC, who is uh working. Um, she's she's going to be in um in in this play, and I was sent to interview her in her dressing room, and it was I was very nervous. I didn't know what I was doing. I was you know 23." I, I was terrified she would think that I was a complete fraud, and that she would call me out and say, and you know, unmask me and say, "You are not a reporter. You are not a journalist. You are a fraud. You are a liar. You're coming into my dressing room <laughs> pretending like you've had you have clips that you know what you're doing, and you're a liar. You're a fraud. And get out of here." And then I'd be found out, and my career would be over. Yeah. And and the reality is that that's only happening in your head. But but in but but you walk in with a pen and a, a pad. And all of a sudden, the world opens up to you because now I'm saying, Hey, I have a job. I'm on a mission. Can I ask you some questions? So I ended up interviewing her. Her name was Suzanne Richard, and I'll never forget her name. And she was so nice. And I wrote a profile on her and I sent it to the editor. And it was on spec. It was a, a, a long profile. It was, I think, 1,100 words or 1,200 words, maybe 1,500. It was long. And um, he got back to me a few days later. I said, Well, it needs a lot of work. So I'm not sure it's going to work. But he ended up rewriting it, essentially, mm. completely rewriting this story. And it ran. And <laughs> it was a beautiful story. I mean, it was not my it was it was my reporting. It wasn't my prose. But um, Brad McKee was his name. He's still in, 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 in media today. Brilliant editor. And he wrote this. He, he rewrote the story. I had a byline for the first time in the Washington City paper. And I remember The day it came out, it was a Wednesday. This is 1998. And I get on the metro in Washington, D.C. that night. And and on a Wednesday at that time in the 90s, if you didn't get the Washington City paper by 5 p.m., you didn't get it. And you had to get it if you wanted listings. There was no Craigslist. There was no concert listings. You had to get it. And I'm on the metro. And I see people reading the paper throughout the metro that, that was wednesday night and i'm standing next to somebody reading my article and it was the most thrilling moment in my life it was to see my name typeset in print with with this article that I hadn't really written but I'd reported <laughs> but still it was mine and, and the person next to me didn't even know that it was me who wrote it. I wanted to shake him and say that's my article but I just stood there. I, I couldn't believe it. it. It was a feeling of incredible accomplishment and, and that was it. I mean that was, was hooked. You know, I, I never – there never – a week did not pass for the next three years where I didn't have something in the Washington City paper.
1: I, uh, love that story and I think it's going to resonate with my audience. Cause I, I think of the listeners of the show like me are these people that have to create just like you were describing this thing of, it's not enough to just do it on the side. They just want to, they want to do it as much as humanly possible. And they want those moments of sitting next to the person, you know, feeling like what they're making has some merit and meaning in other people's lives. So I, I think that, uh, I know everyone listen that listens to this show can relate to that, but then, you know, for the people that are lucky enough to get uh, some, some headway in that creative journey, they find out that sometimes when you get what you wanted, uh, it doesn't turn out how you thought it was going to, or there's just things that happen along the path that you didn't see coming. And I know, there were, there's a few different things. There's, um, you know, some mental health stuff. And then also at some point journalism or the, or the, the, the atmosphere of journalism that you were part of felt stifling. Yeah. Like what, what, how did that change from this? I'm the luckiest person in the world <laughs> to, oh, I don't know if I can keep going.
0: I, I think it's important for all of us to stop and, and me too. Cause I can, I can err on the side of pessimism and negativity. I think many of us have that gene inside of us. And I'm lucky to be married to somebody who is the opposite. She has the positivity gene. And I have to force myself to to say I am the luckiest person. And being lucky doesn't mean there are going to be moments of incredible challenge and difficulty and setbacks and and failure, right? But But in aggregate, like... Even being being able to create something that you love that you're proud of is just a moment of great fortune, you know, great good fortune. And you know, for me, I early in my career, I was very, very lucky in that I I I found this thing I loved, and you know, I spent seven years overseas as a reporter. I ended up becoming. Again, starting out covering arts in Washington, D.C., um, I was which was accidental, I eventually became a foreign correspondent for NPR and became a war correspondent accidentally because I was overseas on 9-11, and all of a sudden, everybody who was overseas became a war correspondent, and many of us spent time in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and that really became my life. Um, I... I covered uh, Israel and and Palestine for CNN, and that that really also became my life. You know, I still was very much pursuing the idea of climbing up the greasy pole. Like, there's this, this phrase, the greasy pole, which I, a lot of people might be familiar with. It's more common in the U.K., but it's famously attributed to, to Benjamin Disraeli, the prime minister of the 19th century prime minister of Britain, which he allegedly said when he became prime minister, I've reached the top of the greasy pole because it's a bunch of people constantly climbing to get to the top and slipping down. And essentially, I, I was doing a version of that, thinking that I would do all these things. I would tick all these boxes. I would be a foreign correspondent. I would be a domestic correspondent. I would I would do the right fellowships. Um, but I also really struggled a lot, even when I was you know, seemingly very successful on the outside with anxiety and, and, um, and depression. And I might have moments today where I'm not happy. But, you know, my, my, my feeling about the profession really started to shift sort of, I would say about around 2010, really 2011. And a couple of things happened at the time, which was, I was a host of, of All Things Considered on NPR on the weekend. Um, I loved it. Um, I felt like it was the last final step to the ultimate step in the pantheon, in the Valhalla of public radio, which was to be the host of All Things Considered on Monday to Friday. Yeah, um, Because that to me felt like, well, that's where I have to get to. You know, I was the editor of my high school paper and college paper and – I I I I got into the city paper, and I got I was overseas for NPR and CNN, and now I've I'm here. I've been doing the weekend shift for four years, three years, and and now I'm going to get to the main show. That's really what it was about. And what happened was I didn't get it. I wasn't when when an opportunity came up. You know, Robert Siegel was this legendary guy, and he stepped down, and Linda Wertheimer and noah Adams, and it was when I had a chance to to to, to seek it out, which I did, um, I wasn't picked and it was made clear to me at that point that, um, I wasn't in the plans, the future plans of executives in, in the news division at NPR. And it was very devastating because I, at that point had been at NPR for I don't know, 13 years, 14 years, and it was my life. It's my identity. It was everything. And I, you know, at at age 36, 37, I was done. My my career, I was done. From age 22 to like 36, this is everything I'd done. And I didn't know what else I could do. I, I only knew how to tell stories of other people. I knew how to interview people. I knew how to make audio programs. And I started to look for other work. You know, I thought I, I maybe I should join a nonprofit or an NGO or some organization and do something else. Um, The other thing that happened was I I stopped loving news. I I stopped being, I stopped loving being a news journalist. You could already see in 2011, 2012, huge fissures developing in in our discourse in the United States. And I didn't want to be part of that. I didn't like it. I didn't, I, you, you could already start to see how people were, sorting in different camps around what they felt was the truth. And it wasn't for me. I'm not a seeker of controversy. I'm not somebody who, who likes, who craves, you know, I, I know people who love being hated and I don't. I, 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 it was, so it was a time in my life where I really had to, I had two kids. I had to kind of reevaluate what I was going to do with my life. And I didn't know. And what happened was, um, I, I really had this opportunity to completely ch- shift what I was doing, 180 degrees, and to leave the world of news behind.
1: Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Font. It's F-O-N-T-S-E-L-F. It's not Fonts Elf. It's not an elf font, but that wouldn't be bad, you know? I'm sure, I feel like elves actually, like Santa's elves, would be pretty good type designers. I could see a whole thing. Anyway, that's not what it is. Font Self is an app that helps you make a font, your own font, Easier than you could ever imagine, and I know from experience, because when I was in college, I tried to make my own fonts, and it was a nightmare back then, because that was back in the ancient days of pyramids, where you had to, you know, chisel them into a stone block, and the pharaoh would say, no, that's not a hieroglyph. That did nothing, that, I'm not, no, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I tell you this. FontSelf is awesome. I did actually try to make a font when I was in college. It was a nightmare back then, but because font self didn't exist. I used FontSelf. I was trying to make a new font for YouTube video thumbnails. Um, I wanted to give a font of my lettering to my podcast assistant, Katie, and so that they could create thumbnails for our videos. Um, without me making new uh, lettering every week because it's pretty, you know, it's consuming for something that um, isn't the primary focus of the show. And, uh, and I went on a search to find the easiest way to do that. Tons of people came back to me and said, hey, you should try Font Self out. We did. I made a font in like 30 minutes um, that we're using that I'm super proud of. And I think that it's uses like that are a great example of how creators can use this and i think for me personally having a signature lettering uh, style has been a big part of my creative practice and kind of building and establishing uh, the creative prep pep talk brand online and um, this is a really cool fun way to do it so go check it out in the app store for your ipad font self you can type fonts elf and it will come up but Just know that even though it worked, it wasn't right. From what I gathered, uh, just kind of looking into your story, it seemed like news also had a constraint of, there was just kind of an idea at some point that you couldn't take anymore of like, you can't influence things. And that also seemed uh, to be you kind of got freed from that as you moved into the podcasting space is that kind of how it went
0: yeah absolutely I mean you know I think many people who who do creative work right in whatever capacity it is ultimately it's it's for your own fulfillment but it's also to have some kind of impact It doesn't mean like you make a piece of art or you write a poem or a song and all of a sudden like, your Picasso or Siegfried Sassoon or you know but you might write something or make a piece of art or write a song that moves one person which is massive and it's the same in in journalism you know most people who go into the profession they want to have an impact they want to see that their work doesn't die the next day that that it has meaning that you profiled somebody who was unjustly imprisoned or that you you shed light on, you know, corruption and that was resolved. And in my case, I felt and that that work does happen, but I felt that that what I was doing in the news side was just delivering news every day or, you know, every weekend. And it was hard to see that it was having much of an impact in the sense that I always thought of news as a way to help people understand how others were thinking about the world that, that they might not know or be exposed to or even agree with. And I I found that the news environment by the 2010s was really fracturing in such, in such an intense way that I was only speaking to people who already more or less wanted to hear the news from a very particular perspective. What happened when I shifted into podcasting, into the first the Ted Radio Hour and then how I built this was that all of a sudden people were really being changed and moved in a personal way because the stories were about the lives of people, their own experiences of solving challenges and problems or creating new things or coming up with new ideas and so whether it was the ted radio hour or eventually how i built this it didn't matter that i was talking about science or philosophy on the ted radio hour and business on how i built this the premise was the same it was people who were trying to have some kind of impact and how they did it and the how they architected it, how they navigated their lives, how they solved problems, how they came up with creative solutions. And that I, we instantly began to hear from people on an individual basis about how those things moved them. And I had not experienced that at scale. I never had. As a reporter reporting to millions of people, occasionally you do a story and people are moved by it, but I'd never experienced. Letters, personal letters, people hugging me. That was crazy. You know, people really being moved by the stories from the interviews I was doing. And that that just had a just a massive profound impact on me because I didn't know that. I didn't know what that feeling was like. I didn't know that, you know, you could tell a story about somebody's business and their experience of failure meant, means so much to somebody who is experiencing the same thing now. To every single day, I receive these messages from people who hear how I built this or the great creators and they're like, that person did something that I know. I know that person, it's a public person. And here I am inside of their brain and their anxieties and their consciousness, and it gives me energy. And that's – that was the difference. That that was the, such a hugely profound difference that I realized I could have more impact talking to people about their lives than I could delivering the news.
1: Yeah, and I- – and I think you might've not known what it was like to experience your work moving people or, or people learning from it. But I think a lot of creators relate to there is an impulse that is longing for that. And so until you make work that does that, you don't know what it feels like, but then once you do it's, you know, very, very satisfying. And I, this idea of moving people and, and people learning from people's stories uh, I'm under the impression that that approach you take to how I built this and and also now the great creators um, that you came in contact with this method in a in a fellowship correct mm-hmm. and what could you tell us a little bit about that a little bit about what this method is and what you discovered there
0: well um i I did a, a fellowship back in 2008 um, it's called an even fellowship at Harvard and one of the co- really cool things that that they did, and I believe they still do it is every fellow had to tell their life story on a Monday night and provide dinner for the other fellows. It's called the sounding. And it, it was just a lot of pressure. It was a really hard, like, I spent, you know, nine months preparing, eight months you know, preparing for mine. But it is an incredible experience. Because when you sit down for an hour or two hours, and you hear someone else's story, you can't help but feel connected to that person. And when you feel connected to that person, it completely changes the community and the environment. And so never in my life have I been a part of a group of 40 people where you walk away from the year feeling connected to every single one of them. It's very unusual. And and it, it happened because... We took the time to listen to each person's story. And so essentially what I'm doing with how I built this and with the great creators is taking people who we know, Graham Nash, for example, right? Graham Nash is two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee with two different bands. Most people know know his work, obviously, with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and he's like at the top of his creative game. Now, he's not making music that's charting, okay? But if you ask him, and he plays it for us in the interview, if you ask him about his work and you hear his work, he knows that he's his writing, his prose, his, express, his ability to bend language and express words, taking all of that, you know, Seven decades, eight decades of life, and distilling it now to new songs, he's at the top of his his game. You know, I I, I read an interview with Bono recently where he talked about how his songwriting is better than it's ever been in his entire life, and they haven't had a chart, they haven't had a hit on the charts in twenty years probably. Yeah. You too, and it doesn't matter. Because it's not about that. It's about understanding that as you hone your craft, you you get better and better at it all of the time. And so through these stories, it's it's both this window into somebody's soul and their life that is relatable. But it's also designed to be a series of lessons of how people do things. I mean, I interviewed Stephen Colbert um, For this show for the great creators, and he talks about just the simple concept of work. And he he remembered there was a a poster on the wall at Northwestern where he in the drama department where he went to college. And the poster said, um, I said like unrewarded talent is proverbial. And it's such a great quote because you always people are like that guy just came out of nowhere and he's a superstar who's that like and and the thing is is that it's doesn't exist like (laughs) i mean of course there's some people like you know not everybody's born to sing like adele but if adele didn't hone that raw talent she couldn't be adele like and so colbert talks about how hard he works to do what he does to make it look easy and i know that Everyone listening to this has a version of that, you know, that I look at your artwork and it's so joyful. You know, you look at the Andy Pizza artwork. It's so joyful and it's so lovely. And you, we just look at it and it's it's this joyful moment. And the sweat, the agony breaking through a, a moment to get that done. We don't know that because your job is to make it look easy. My job is to make how I built this or the great creators sound easy, even though we put so much work into it. But it's designed ultimately with a very specific goal for you to walk out of that and say, holy shit, like somebody like Nick Kroll, who is this brilliant comedian, relies on improv, which he practices regularly, day in, day out. He he works with the same – group of friends that he worked with as a young improv, you know, member of an improv troupe 20 years ago, because it he has to do that. He's, he's, it's, it's not like you just stop and you're like, yep, I'm great. Like, uh, we had Audra McDonald on, you know, she's won more Tony Awards than any living actor in the world. And it's crazy, because you talk to somebody at that level, and you're like, you're Audra McDonald, you're the greatest stage actor in probably human history. Okay. And she said to me, I look for roles that scare me to death. And I'm thinking, what role could possibly scare you? Like, what role could you do that would possibly intimidate you? And what you realize is that people who are committed to their craft and love it, they have fear. They have a fear because they want to make something so great. And... The fact that she looks for roles that scare her tells you that if we don't have that fear, if we don't seek it out, we can't get better at what we we do. That's how she gets better. She looks for roles that scare her, that force her out of her comfort zone, even though she's had five Tony Awards. And, And it's that kind, it's those kinds of stories that I think for me as a creator are just hugely inspiring. I mean, I make the show ultimately for me, it's selfishly, you know, because I, yeah. I, I'm learning from these people. But we get to share those things with, you know, with with the world.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, and I appreciate you sharing your story with me. And I've been fascinated to hear about, uh, I've heard you talk about in that fellowship, even how story and case studies, this idea of learning through story uh, is so essential and you shared a bunch of little snippets of stories um, that you've encountered in in your podcasting and I'm excited about your show because it's essentially just a a batch of creative case studies which are found to be yeah moving but also one of the greatest ways to to learn. And I find like I think what really struck me as I kind of dove into, what I could glean from your case study as, as a, as a creator in your own right. I just thought it was um, just really moving to see how you started out refusing the entrepreneurial path of living your own story, went into journalism and told other people's stories, feeling like that is going to be, you know, a, a safer bet for success only to feel like, I, you know, I, I can't do this. And then and then ultimately find that case studies and other people's stories are actually the best bet you have of telling a better story yourself and seeing that full circle moment of now. I mean, do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? You are a founder. Um, It's just really fascinating how life pulled you all the way, all the way back
0: there. I mean, it is. And and yeah, I am. I, I, I don't work for a big company. I, I haven't worked for NPR for many, many years. I still work with them a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, as I really began to see in the stories of others, so many things in my own life and, you know, not not like, oh, I'm just like them, but just things I, I could identify with, you know, anxieties or moments of self-doubt or ways that people navigated challenges it, it became clear to me that that's what I could do too, and so about ten years ago, I I, I set up my own production company, and now I I have two, um, one which is Built to Productions, and we obviously how I built this is part of what what we do, but uh, Wisdom from the Top and our new show The Great Creators, and then with two friends we founded a kids media company called Tinkercast, and we make kids audio programs and. Books And our our main show is called Wow in the World, and it's a science show for kids.
1: I could not be more grateful for you sharing your story. I feel like if if your story was the hero's journey, the elixir that you brought back to the home of creators (laughs) is this notion of the power of a case study and the power of story. Yeah. And I'm really pumped that someone – with your tools creatively have decided to create case studies for creators because I know a lot of creators that already have got so much from how I built this. And so now to get it a little bit even more in our wheelhouse, it's just um it's just a big gift. And so thank you. Thank
0: thank you so much for saying that Andy. I mean I mean that's the thing. Like I I I didn't mention you alluded to it, but I really I took this class on that fellowship. I took a class at Harvard mm-hmm. Business School where uh, where we had case studies and that's how you learned about business. And I was like, wait, that's how they're learning at business school? I can do this. I tell stories. I can do it and make them available for free to anybody. And that's how I built this. We have 500 episodes now, 500 case studies of people, their lives, their stories, how they started businesses. And we're essentially doing the same thing with very famous people. I mean, Andy Garcia, one of the greatest living actors in the world, That's a case study of how how does he you know how has he managed to and not everybody wants to be an actor or an entrepreneur or a singer but they all have they're all they're they're things they do they're ways they think about the world that are universally applicable to anybody who is creative who who wants to architect or build a creative life for themselves you know and so you can take Jim Parsons or Zoë Deschanel, or you know, Audra McDonald, or Weird Al Yankovic—any of these people on the show, Tom Hanks—and um, turn them into case studies for anybody to walk away from with with this really, really powerful series of of ideas and 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 knowledge. And so that that was the thinking behind this show. It was to say, hey, you know, there is a lot we can learn from people. In the creative space, you know, in in the in the in arts and musicians and actors who who are paid to embody characters, to understand the psychology of them, to navigate up the ups and downs of their profession. Um, And that's what we're that's what we're trying to do.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for doing it. And thanks for coming on the show and, uh, and sharing your case study. Everybody go check out the show and um, yeah, I hope we get to talk again sometime.
0: Thank you, Andy. So great. Great talking with you.
1: Chapter two, embrace meta skills. What are meta skills? What's it all about? All right. I'm going to keep this short and sweet because we already had a big story, Um, But here's how I interpret Guy's story. Uh, Like everyone, he needed stability and saw that his parents' entrepreneurial journey or writing their own story, if you will, was a bit too risky for his blood. And so he chose uh, early on to go into journalism. And, you know, it was a real job with certainty and facts, and he would find the stability and satisfaction there by telling other people's stories. But at some point, telling other people's stories just didn't seem to cut it. And in that fellowship at Harvard, he found his elixir, the quintessential Harvard Business School practice of learning by studying case studies, by learning, by by studying stories of how other business people failed or succeeded. And that practice of learning from other people's stories gave him what I think he really needed, which was he found the stability and the significance that he was after in the case studies, because learning and telling other people's stories is the most effective way to tell a stable, successful story of your own. And in the end, he came full circle and became an entrepreneur just like his parents. And I was reading, I was kind of diving into what is the theory behind these case studies? Like, why does the Harvard Business School use these as such a foundational piece of um, learning for their students? And there's a great article on Harvard Business Review uh, titled, What the Case Study Method Really Teaches?, And they go into why this method is so effective. And it's essentially this. They don't teach, these case studies don't teach specific skills that date. They teach instead meta skills. And even the process of just studying a case study and trying to discern from it is going to teach you these meta skills, you know, learning from case studies and stories teaches you the meta the meta skill of things like discernment and bias recognition so if you want to stay relevant as a creator in my experience and in guy's story there is a clear mega the ultimate meta skill in my opinion that you can embrace in your practice right now and it is the practice of consuming and analyzing and learning from other creators' stories. Honestly, this resonates so deeply with me because this is exactly how I learned almost everything that has worked in my creative practice. And the best part is that when you're learning, and, and this is the best part for me because I'm ADHD and I can pretty much only do things that are fun. Um, That's kind of like, that's the, I don't think it should be attention deficit dis- disorder. I think it should be like, um, you know, dopamine deficit disorder or, or fun deficit. Like I got to do a lot of fun stuff for me to get a fun kick, you know? And, um, and the best part of the case study method and, is that when you're learning from these creative journeys, when you are studying your creative heroes journey that you're passionate about, it's fun. And so this type of learning is not only super effective in a, in a super mega foundational meta skill, but it's also the most fun one to develop. Chapter three, your creative call to adventure, study a creative case study and identify the elixir. So at the top of this episode, I mentioned that Guy and I both have this big passion for Hero's Journey story structures and the like. And I pulled from that to do this interview. And I mentioned last week that in the coming weeks, we're going to be doing a series all about how, how to actually build substance into your creative practice by authentically folding yourself into the work that you make. I think it's, it is where the inflection points happen in creative practices when they start making stuff of real substance. So how do you do that? How do you make work that is substantive? Substantive. Sub Snivs. sniffs. Sub sniff. Sniff a sub. You know that subway smell. Anyway, the best way I know how to put substance into your creative work is with the power of story. And that's why... For the next weeks, we're going to dive deep into how to find your story and how to put it into your work. That's what we're going to be doing in the next series. But don't worry, I'm not just talking a memoirist here. Like as an illustrator, when I made the Indie Rock Coloring Book or published a dream journal, I was telling my story in different ways. I was telling different parts of my story and what it means to be me. All of the most effective self-initiated illustration projects that I've done have been about telling my story uh even when the expression was fictional or fantasy based and same goes for my kids books as well but today for your call to it ad- to adventure your call to creative action let's start with the step of finding your story and substance as a creator by first identifying stories that resonate at the same frequency as yours. So here's your call to adventure. Go find a guest uh, that piques your interest in Guy's new show, The Great Creators. And and trust me, it's going to be easy because the guest list is so annoyingly inspirational like as a podcaster i have part of me is like this is amazing and the other part of me is like i want to talk to tom hanks and billy porter and andrew bird and bjork and those are just like the most recent episodes it's ridiculous um it, it's just a treasure trove of creative elixirs um and so go pick one of those episodes and 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 listen to it and try to identify what is the elixir in this creator's journey. In every hero's journey, the hero is out there trying to find an elixir, trying to find something that is going to change everything for them and for their people back home, um, for people like them. And the elixir is the takeaway from each interview. Now, there's a, there might be a few, but what's the one for you or what do you think it illustrates the best? What is the lesson that that episode teaches you? When you get good, So not only is this good because you're going to find a creative elixir that's going to encourage you, but when you get good at seeing the elixirs in others' stories and case studies like this, your personal creative gold metal detector is going to be calibrated to notice when those takeaways, when those elixirs show up in your own life story and those little gold creative nuggets are the best thing to build new pieces of work on. And so studying other people's stories and identifying the elixir, the the secret sauce of their story will help you start to notice your own. Um, and it doesn't have to be Guy's podcast. Uh, yeah, we're doing, we're, we're collaborating with their show and, and I'm pumped about his new show, but um, it, you know, it doesn't have to be that. It can be anywhere. I got a serious creative nugget from uh, Mark Maron's episode with Knives Out, Glass Onion, filmmaker ryan johnson recently and i'll probably talk about that on a future episode i was so pumped about it i had to turn the episode i was wrapping christmas presents i heard it i was so pumped about it i had to pause it and run downstairs and tell my wife sophie <laughs> and then run back upstairs but that that's what happens i feel like when you develop uh, a taste for creative case studies all right but if you want an easy fix I'm certain there's a guest or an episode title of the great creators podcast that will have something that will pique your interest. And I know that guy is such a veteran and such a masterful storyteller that I am certain that you can count on that every episode will have some sort of an elixir for you to pull from. So thank you guy Roz for all your time and being such an inspiration to me as a fellow podcaster Uh, Check out Guy's new show, The Great Creators, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, that's it for another week. Hey, if, uh, if you got something from this episode or from a different episode and you want to give back, We are partially listener supported. You can go to patreon.com slash creative pep talk and, uh, and back, uh, a a buck or a couple bucks or five bucks an episode. It really helps us keep the lights on, um, on in our show. There's a lot of hidden costs to making a podcast and we see you and we appreciate you. If you are in a stage in your life or creative practice where you can't afford to do that, don't do it. Like we exist to help you uh, level up and, and, and thrive as a creator. We don't want to be a stumbling block or a hindrance. And so if you can't afford to support the show, don't. And if, you, and if you can't, but you want to give back, one thing that you can do is, there's two things you can do that really help the show. Number one, you can share the show with friends or followers. Uh, if there is an episode in particular that you found really interesting, you know, giving it some kind of um, co-signing uh, testimonial, film a little video or something, you talk, talking about the show. We've built our almost our entire show that way, and uh, we we see you, and we really appreciate the support. Uh, it also really helps to give Apple Podcast reviews and ratings. So if you could do that that would help a lot thanks to yoni wolf and the band Y for our theme music massive thanks to connor jones of pending beautiful for editing the show and gigantic thanks to katie chandler and ryan appleton and of course sophie miller for podcast assistance of all kinds and until we speak again stay pepped up